0: Welcome to the Hope Revolution Messages. You'll be able to find our sermon podcast at hoperevolution.church forward slash sermon, as well as all other podcast players. We hope you enjoy this message.
1: Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you again.
0: Just get my thumbprint on here so that it opens up. New seasons. New seasons are weird things, because they start with the death of the old season. We always go, "Oh, I, I want a new season. I love a new season," but new seasons start with the death of an old season, and um, the death of an old season is hard. Um. So I'm going to start, we're actually looking at Stephen's Stephen's speech this morning, which is an extraordinarily long um, passage, and um, we're going to read most of it, um, but I'm going to jump in and out of it. But before I do, I just wanted to read to you um, part of a prophetic word that was given uh, by Nate and Christy Johnson just in the past couple of days. Um, and I really do think it's relevant for um, the beginning of the new season and the death of the old. And I think it ties in with what we're looking at with um, Stephen this morning as well. Um, so this prophetic word, if you want to read the whole thing, you can have a look at Um, um but it. Basically, uh, just the part that I wanted to read said, a bright light shone into my car to begin f- uh, and began to fill the car, and I could feel the warmth and the glory, the honey, the oil of the glory, and the presence of the Lord. And instantly I knew this was the other dimension to this revelation. And the Lord simply said, My glory is about to be revealed. My latter glory is about to be revealed, just as you look for signs and wonders in the earth and the unusual happenings around the earth – Look for the signs of a glory that has been reserved for now. Look for the new wine. Look for the wine that has been reserved for last, the best wine. Look for the glory that until this time has not been poured out. It is the latter glory that I said I would pour out of my house, says the Lord. And this latter glory shall fill the earth. And I'm looking for those who will be the glory carriers of heaven. They will be the dispensers of this glory and they will not back down. This is a time that the church is called to rise up and be dispensers of this glory. And I say this to you, church, this will be a year when I do not want you to back down. This is a year that I want you to rise up in the fear of God. I want you to rise up in the fear of the Lord and break off the fear of man. uh, man. 2022 has been a, a year of great purging. It's been a year of great resetting of hearts. It's been a year of laying down idols and casting every single forged and manufactured religious thing into the fire. And it's been a year of deliverance, says the Lord. Watch now, as even in the next month, I begin to finalize that which I have started in you, and watch as I begin to bring to completion that which I began in you. This was not a year of floundering. This was not a year of wandering to and fro. This was a year of necessary adjustments, says the Lord so that I could lead you into that place where you could be the dispenser of my glory. It's, it's so fascinating the way that God works because um, we can grieve and mourn what we understand and what we know, but when he moves us from one season into another season, it's going to come with that grief, but then what he's going to do is he's going to catapult us into the new. And so often what it feels like is this enormous step back And this enormous culling, and this enormous uh, grieving process as something dies, but what we don't see is the other side of that death. And I've been reminded, (laughs) I was going to say hundreds, it's probably thousands of times over this past year, that God sees far more than what I see. And... What I need to do in the midst of whatever it is that's happening in my situation is trust that he has the other side in mind and that what we're dealing with now has another side to it. In the midst of it, everything feels like it's being squeezed, everything feels like it's being pulled back, everything feels like it's hard, and there's this tendency to want to go, what's the point and I should give up? But in reality... What the Lord is doing is he's saying, I'm actually refining you so that you can move into the greater in the latter days. And in order for us to see that perspective, we need to be able to hear those things from him constantly. So I've become a little bit of a prophetic junkie over the past year, um, reading and, and listening to these kind of words all the time to remind me I can't see what the Lord sees. But he's certainly talking about it he's certainly telling us about it and then if that's the case then he's he's dropping these seeds in to go keep going keep going keep trusting keep believing keep listening keep holding on to me because I'm going to do this this kind of pulling back you know how a um, um, a slingshot really pulls back right pulls back tension gets higher tension gets harder And then all of a sudden there's this release and you go firing forward and that's when you actually see what the point or the purpose of that pullback season was. So there's a couple of key things in there that I want us to look at at the end of this. Um, But we're going to jump into Acts chapter 6 from verse 8 to begin with. It says, Now Stephen... A man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue for the freedom, of the freedom, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They brought false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? So we're going to look at Stephen's response today to that question, are these charges true? So basically we know the charges are not true already because we we know that there were false witnesses who were saying these things about him. Um, but one of the things that I think is fascinating about Stephen's response, it's the longest of the speeches and acts, um, and he goes right into the history of Judaism and everything that these people that he's talking to hold dear. So he's speaking their language, he's going straight into their sort of zone. And the very th- first thing that we notice is that he doesn't argue, like he doesn't, he's there under false pretenses. He's been accused falsely. Uh, of blasphemy. He's been accused falsely of throwing out the law of Moses and he's asked this question, are these charges true? Well, the very first thing that I would do in that instance is say, no, they're not. And I can prove to you that they're not. You know, let's have a trial, shall we? <laughs> you know, And these guys are uh, testifying falsely against me and then I'm going to bring these other people in who are going to say, no, that's actually not the case. I'm trying to prove from this blah, blah, blah. But he doesn't argue. He never states that the, um, that the charges are not true. He never tries to fight for himself. Instead, what he does is a classically Pauline thing. He sees an opportunity to speak the truth of God and he grabs hold of it. And what we're going to note as we look through this Um, are these beautiful links that he brings from the Old Testament um, into the New and shows Jesus through the midst of um, the stories and the narratives of the Old Testament. What I um, love and um, more recently have come to um, kind of focus on a little bit more are the connection points, the dot points all throughout Scripture that, that connect Scripture and that point to Jesus. we are 66 books in the Bible. We've got, over, we've got 40 writers, but there's only one author. And he brings everything together so perfectly and so profoundly when you've got a document that's been written by 40 different people over thousands of years. To be able to get all of those people to write exactly what he wants them to write And so perfectly, like it's actually scary how perfect it is. I'll give you an example. This is going to throw you Christmas into a tailspin. Uh, Did you know that angels do not sing in the Bible? That's going to throw your hallmark cards into chaos, isn't it? Angels do not sing in Scripture. In Luke chapter 2, it says, Uh, The glory of God shone around them, and then the angels proclaimed and joined, the the heavenly host joined the angel who was talking to the shepherds, and they joined together in a heavenly whatever, saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, etc. Okay, Luke writes that. Isaiah Writes about how you know in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and the train of the robe; his robe filled the temple with glory, and the seraphim came, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they had all these crazy wings and eyes under their wings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then they called to each other, "Holy, holy, holy," is the Lord God Almighty. So you've got Isaiah, seven hundred years before Luke, and Isaiah makes a point of not saying singing. And Luke makes a point of not saying singing. Then you have John writing in Revelation, and he makes a point of not saying singing. Going, What is the deal with that? I, I, I don't think there's any specific tradition that says angels can't sing. In fact, my guess is that angels probably do sing. But in Scripture, singing is reserved for the redeemed. The only people in Scripture that sing are the redeemed. The Lord also sings, he delights over us with singing, and creation sings because of the Lord, but only the redeemed sing. So it doesn't mean to say that non-redeemed can't sing, because we know they can, because duh, you know, turn on your TV, unredeemed people can sing, but the point is that in Scripture. It is reserved for the redeemed. It's a gift given to the redeemed. And what amazes me about this, the only reason I'm talking about that, because it's got nothing to do with Stephen, the amazing thing for me about that is how perfectly over all of these years, these authors were told to write specific things. And they wrote only that so that we get this thread and this understanding and these dots that we can connect throughout Scripture. So, Stephen argues that, um, that these guys, these leaders of the Sanhedrin, have rejected Christ because they're blinded by their worship of the land, the law, and the temple. They're basically obsessed by these things. So he's going, all of these things were given, gifts given to you by God, but you are so obsessed with worshipping those things that you've actually then missed and rejected the Messiah who was meant to come and deliver you so that you didn't have to rely on these things anymore. Um, And and so even though these were gifts given by God, the land, the law and the temple given by God, the, the ultimate goal of them was actually a dynamic relationship with God. And so if those things become the focus of our worship, of these people's worship, then what ends up happening is they miss God himself because they worship the temple, they worship the law, they worship the land, they worship rituals and customs, all of these things given by God, but they were only ever given by God so that he would be glorified and so that he would be worshipped. But that's the part that they were missing. So when I think about that, I think about us, and I go, okay, well, we don't worship the land, the law, and the temple, but you can bet we worship some things, you know, We worship a host of things ourselves, Um, denominational practice. We've got legalism in the midst of it. We've got methods of worship. You know, we'd had a totally different method of worship this morning. Great. Why did we do it? We did it because we didn't have a worship team. And it forced us into a situation outside of what we would normally do. But I would maintain, well, how much does the Western church worship worship? Right? How much do we worship the way church has to be done? And, and our customs and our methods and all of those kind of things. You know, we, we are so, we are in exactly the same um, danger as what the Sanhedrin were of turning our focus to our customs, our rituals, um, and what we're supposed to get right, as opposed to then focusing on. The Lord Himself. So, are these charges true? Verse 2 To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Oh, I love that because he comes straight in, brothers and fathers, he's talking from a perspective of I am family.
1: We are family.
0: He's not. Uh, he's not coming from a perspective of here. I am a guest speaker and a stranger to you, ready to smack you on the bottom. But rather, he comes in from that perspective of we are family. I'm part of you. I'm not separate from you. I haven't. I haven't separated myself out from you to now be a foreigner. But I am actually one of you. So he comes from that very familiar sort of tone. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your fa- your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So one of Stephen's main points that we're going to see throughout this is that God dwells outside the temple and outside Judea as well. And he's going to say this again and again and again. God appeared to Abraham, and he appeared to Abraham before Israel was a thing right? That's where he starts. He, he appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia and it was he was a long way away and the Lord appeared to him then. So our, the one who we say is our father, you know, Abraham, this is what he's essentially saying to these people, the Lord appeared to him outside of this place. So how is it that you can be so bound to the temple and Judea as being the holy place and the holy land if God himself appeared outside uh, initially to Abraham in the first place. Um, The prophetic implication, of course, of this is that Gentiles would shortly be grafted into the chosen people as well. Verse 4. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran, and after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even the ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. And we're going to jump down. I didn't write which verse we're jumping down to. That's helpful. And Abraham became the father of Isaac. It's probably only a couple of verses. Are you with me? And eight. Great, thanks. Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. And later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Um, so he's he's now he's gone... This is what happened from Abraham and then he sort of jumps through the patriarchs and he gets to Joseph and he wants to focus on Joseph a little bit. Now Joseph has so many parallels to Jesus, actually over a hundred, there's over a hundred ways that Joseph was like Jesus or uh, what commentators call a type of Christ, a foreshadowing or a forerunner of Jesus. Um, Joseph is rejected by his brothers, just as Jesus was rejected by his own people. Joseph is thrown into a pit, just as Jesus was put in a grave, but God rescues him out of it. Um, Though he was rejected by his own, strangers receive him. So with Jesus, that would be us, the Gentiles. And finally, Joseph is raised up to be the ruler, even as Christ has been glorified by God with power over the nations. So there's a, a whole host of little connecting points here, that Stephen in his speech is hinting at as he talks to um, the Sanhedrin. Uh, verse 11. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was no grain, uh, that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. So, same point that he made about Abraham. Similarly to Abraham, God met his people's need outside of the land. He met their need in Egypt, uh, which is a a type for the world in Scripture. Um, He he met his people outside of Egypt. He met their need outside, uh, outside of Israel. He met their need outside of the land, outside of the law, and outside of the temple. So he's going, God exists beyond this place, and you need to widen yourself to recognize that. Um, Now, Joseph, here's, here's another one where Joseph is a type of Christ. If you want to do a really interesting study in Scripture, go and find how many times there is a first and a second of something. A first visit and a second visit. And then see if you can connect it to the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Because this is a classic one. Joseph, first, the first visit, he was amongst them and they did not recognize him. That is Stephen's point. He was among you. He was among his brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel, and you did not recognize him. But the second visit, he made himself known. And, uh, you know, these kind of connections are glorious. The first – I'll give you a couple more for your studies. Uh, The first descent from Mount Sinai of Moses with the law, um, they were worshipping a golden calf and it was chaos and a mess, and the Lord sent him down to sort it out, um, and a whole, there was a whole lot of judgment, and then the Lord brought him back up onto Mount Sinai, and he came down again, and that's when his face was um, shining with the glory of God. So you get the same thing, first coming, second coming. The tabernacle is another one. Tabernacle is a temporary dwelling. The temple, a permanent dwelling. And so you get this first coming, second coming kind of thing, and it happens again and again throughout Scripture. Um, Stephen doesn't specifically talk about those ones, but this one he's making a very specific point about Joseph. You did not recognize him just as his brothers did not recognize him. Verse 18. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that, time when Mo- uh, at that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other uh, pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler uh, ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, the angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to get a closer look, and he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free Now come I will send you back to Egypt and this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words who made you ruler and judge He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea for 40 years and at, at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Now I've done the whole section of Moses there. Um, but we're going to chat about it a bit. So, ways that um, Stephen here is describing Moses, the one that they hold up as the standard, Moses is the guy. You know, every time that Jesus um, had an argument with the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they bring Moses into it, you know, but Moses said this and Moses said that. And the law that they were living by. Um, was based in the law of Moses. So they were holding up Moses as a standard, and yet Stephen's going, but Moses was a forerunner for Christ. And Moses even prophesied about Christ, and you're now rejecting him out of hand. Um, so, And similarly to Joseph, Moses has over a 100 ways that he is a type of Christ as well. As a baby, he escaped death. At the hands of Pharaoh, don't worry, I'm not going to say all hundred. Uh, He escaped death at the hands of Pharaoh, Jesus from Herod. Uh, Moses was no ordinary child, Jesus also. Moses grew in wisdom and stature, so did Jesus. Moses was mighty in word and deed. Luke says the same thing of Jesus in Luke 24, 19. Moses urged two fighting Israelites to make peace. Jesus was supposed to be a unifier of the very people in this conversation. He was rejected by, his, by the people the Lord sent him to save, as was Jesus. And Moses ultimately said that God would raise up a prophet like him for their own, from their own people. And is, Stephen's point here is that Jesus is that prophet. Additionally to that, Moses stood before a burning bush. Um, this bush, the word for that bush there in Exodus uh, is an acacia bush, which is like a thorny bush. Um, it's the same word for the thorns that grew out of the ground when Adam sinned. And uh, so in Eden, when the thorns started to grow out of the ground and the weeds started to grow out of the ground, which is a a symbol of sin, the same bush is the one that Moses, well, not the, the exact same bush, but the same type of bush is the one that Moses was standing in front of, where the fire of God was coming and speaking to him, But not consuming the bush. So even that is a symbol of the grace of God coming and landing on sinful human humankind and not destroying it. So all of these symbols, again and again and again, we're seeing Stephen has this extraordinary spirit-filled understanding of connecting the dots um, for the people in the Sanhedrin between the Old Testament and what had happened with Christ. Um, He calls once again, he does the same thing he did with Joseph and with Abraham. The land at Sinai, um, which was not in Judea, was called holy ground. And it was called holy ground by God himself. That's where he met with Moses. So his point is driven home again here by repetition, that the non-holy land is also a place where God can dwell the non-holy land locations in which God interacted with Moses. Um, God raised up Moses in Egypt. He provided for and uh, the rejected Moses in Midian. He called Moses in the desert near Mount Sinai, and he called Mount Sinai holy ground. And then he led him by his own presence, a pillar of cloud and fire in a temporary tabernacle through a wilderness outside of the holy land. So he's basically saying all of these things that you worship and honor, you're doing it because you want to, not because the Lord told you to. He has given you these things so that you can access him, but you are focusing on these things. So with Abraham, Joseph, and now Moses, Stephen emphasizes that God's redemptive power was given to his people outside of Judea. And all of this is pointing, of course, to what is about to happen, uh, which is that Stephen will be stoned, and the church will scatter throughout the empire, and God's presence will dwell wherever his church is. So Stephen, he probably has a pretty good inkling (laughs) that that's about to happen, in fairness, because he's walking headfirst into a wall, but... Um, he doesn't know that his stoning is going to call the scattering of the church. At this moment, the church is restricted to Jerusalem uh, or Judea. And, um, but what's going to happen because of this is that the church is going to scatter in Acts chapter 8 and it's going to scatter right throughout the empire. And then these words that Stephen spoke are going to be prophetic. You think that God's presence can only dwell in the temple? Well, you're wrong. Because the veil was torn when Jesus died, which means that God's presence is now available and open and the Holy Spirit has now come. And so God's presence lives where his people live. Therefore, when the church scatters and goes right throughout the empire and, you know, in 2000 years right throughout the world, God's presence will then exist outside of Israel, outside of Judea. Um, It's the great reversal, actually, where rather than God leading his people by his presence through the wilderness to the promised land, he leads them from the promised land into the wilderness by his presence. And uh, the wilderness then, obviously, that we live in now, right? We live in that wandering wilderness temporary dwelling where the Holy Spirit rests in us, lives in us in a temporary dwelling Until our eternal home, which is the ultimate promised land. So really what we're seeing is what God did in Exodus repeated in us now. And we're in that wilderness kind of last days now. Verse 39. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, I love how they use the word fellow. It just makes them sound dottery, doesn't it? As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. Stephen's point here is that just as Israel rejected God in the time of Moses, so the Jews were rejecting their Messiah and Jesus. Instead, they had turned their temple into an idol. Something their own hands had made. That's his point. And that's huge because he's now starting to turn the corner into, uh, he, he's not moving away from truth, but he certainly is starting to become a little more antagonistic when he starts to say things like this. He's going, your ancestors, they built a golden calf. We all know that that was bad and they were severely punished for it. It was something made by human hands, and they worshipped it because they saw it as one of their gods. So, similarly, what you have built with your hands, this temple, if you worship it, if it becomes your idol, it is just as disgusting to the Lord um, as what the golden calf was. So he really is moving into a... um, Harsh kind of, you can, you can feel the tension build at this point. Um, the interesting thing to me here is that when Aaron made the golden calf, he proclaimed it as, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. So it's not like the Israelites in those days went, oh, we're going we're gonna to create a calf and it's a, different, it's a different God. It's an idol, but it's a different God than God. No, they went, we're actually going to create a calf and we're going to worship it as if it were God. This God brought us out of Egypt and somehow they thought that connection was okay to limit the Lord Almighty into a cow, which is utterly insulting. And yet that's the similarity here is that the temple was the place that held the presence of God. And so, therefore, was able to be worshipped as such. And that's the danger. It's not so much that, you know, there's an, there's an idol or, you know, I've decided that this here is just holy. So, therefore, I'm going to worship the sign. And then everybody would go, well, that's not God. And I'd go, yeah, I know it's a sign, but I'm going to worship it anyway. Because that's obvious. But if it's a case of worshipping worship, Right? but it brings me closer to God and I feel connected to God and so therefore I end up worshipping it rather than him, it's very hard sometimes to see the difference. We can get swept into that and this is what could happen with this temple because they were worshipping the place that only Jews could go, by the way. It was exclusive uh, into at least the inner regions of it. There was a Gentile um, courtyard. But this exclusive place where the presence of God was meant to exist, and so therefore, they're going. We're going to worship that rather than Him, and not even recognizing that it was idolatry. Um, yeah, So Stephen places the te- temple in a similar vein to the golden calf. It might be the place to to. It might be the place made to meet God, but it was not worthy of worship. In and of itself. Now, um, what's fascinating in the midst of this, and I always feel like I, I toggle um, here because I want to say plainly and clearly and straight up, um, Israel is God's treasured possession. Still, we get to be grafted in. Uh, there is no country on earth that I love more than that nation, I love it, I love the people, I love the culture, uh, I love to visit, um, and just fully honour it, and still in the midst of that, it's tragic, because uh, not only what happened scripturally, but then also what has happened for the past couple of millennia, the way that, you know, Gentile Christians have treated Jewish people has caused this massive gap. But what you find as you go into the old city of Jerusalem is Jewish people still standing and praying at the western wall of the temple, because it's the only part of the temple that's still standing, um, because that's the place where they feel they can meet God. And it is tragic, because the Lord is everywhere now, and From this moment scattered throughout the earth and can be accessed anywhere. And so it's not surprising to me as much as uh, a horrific thing to have happened and to be done. But it's not surprising to me that the Lord allowed the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD. Because he no longer needed to reside there. And he no longer wanted it to be an idol. And the focus of worship. He wants to be the focus of worship. Um, Yeah.
2: Okay. Uh, It also means
0: that there's now nowhere to sacrifice, Um, which I think is kindness on the Lord's behalf to animals who would otherwise pointlessly be sacrificed when Jesus has already been sacrificed on our behalf. Verse 44 Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant with, uh, of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen, and after receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them, and uh, they took it and took the land from the nations and drove them drove that God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So what Stephen is actually saying here is he's saying that the Lord commanded the structure of the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle, the temporary dwelling in the wilderness. He actually gave all of those specifications. Thirteen chapters of Exodus are... Um, dedicated to the construction of the tabernacle. It's a lot when you consider that creation only gets two chapters of the Bible real estate, but the tabernacle gets 13. Like, it's important, right? So the Lord's going, I want you to do this and this and this, and this has got to be made with this, and you've got to cover it with this, and everything was perfect, absolutely um, detailed specifics that the tabernacle had to be built with. But what Stephen points out here is, The temple was never commissioned by God. Fascinating, right? David said, I want to build a permanent house for you. And then the Lord said, yeah, okay, I'll let you do that. Well, I won't let you do it. I'll let your son do it. And so Solomon did it. David bought the land. Solomon had the temple built, but the Lord never commissioned the building of the temple. He only commissioned the building of the tabernacle. And what's interesting here is that the tabernacle, (laughs) much like Joseph and Moses, is a type of Christ. In over a hundred ways, the tabernacle points to Jesus. Um, And, you know, if I had three hours, then I would explain all of those because it's really fascinating. Um, But this whole tabernacle was meant to be this temporary place where the, the dwelling of the Shekinah glory of God would be. And he did indwell the temple. But Stephen's point here is the Lord never even asked for this. This wasn't his plan for you. And in fact, Solomon himself in 1 Kings 8 verse 27 says this. He says, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So Solomon even building the temple recognises that this is not going to be able to be a long-term plan for the Lord's presence. Um, God dwelt in the temple, but it appears to have a similar connection to Israel's desire for a king. The Lord allowed it, and it went along with a strategy, even though it was not his command. Um, So, and similarly to the kings having power to oppress them and take their focus from the Lord as their king, the temple had the option of taking their hearts and worship from him. So however the, care, however the careful, deliberate construction of the temporary dwelling of the tabernacle was intended to point to Christ being the dwelling of the glory of God by his spirit and then dwelling in us. Ephesians 2, 19-22 says this, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So what's happened is that uh, Jesus comes, he becomes that ultimate sacrifice, and then his spirit is placed in us and we become the temple of God scattered throughout the earth Therefore, the worship of and idolatry of the temple itself is a pointless exercise. Okay, we're almost there. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people. We thought the tone had changed. Well, it just ramped up again. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did, did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Wow. So we said he was walking headfirst into a wall. Now he's running as fast as he possibly can. Directly into a brick wall. And uh, he uses the platform given by the Sanhedrin for his speech, but he categorically refuses to answer their question. He's, he's not saying, the issue for Stephen is not, are these charges against me true? The issue for Stephen is, do you see the truth? That's his issue. And what I love about Stephen, and I, I, I wonder if Stephen was potentially... You know, when I I think about the audience that Stephen had, I wonder if Stephen was largely responsible for Paul. Because Paul was a part of the Sanhedrin, and he was watching this and listening to it. And Stephen connects all of these dots from the Old Testament that Paul was going to have to try and figure out. We know that Paul was studious Uh, Pharisee of Pharisees, as he says, studied under Gamaliel. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. This guy was heading to become a super rabbi and a great and powerful, learned Jewish man. And as he hears this, and it has to have been relayed by somebody to Luke to write it down, so most likely Paul, all of these dots from the Old Testament are being connected. And what ends up happening is that Paul, is con- he has a conversion experience, which is extraordinary. The Lord appears to him, et cetera, et cetera, which you're going to get to, um, which is powerful enough to convert him. But then Paul says later on in the New Testament that he went to Arabia for three years. And there's tradition that doesn't say it in Scripture, but there is a tradition that says, He went to Horeb. He went to Mount Sinai to work it out. So if Stephen here is connecting all of these dots and Paul's going, I know this scripture so thoroughly. I'm so uh, learned in it. I've studied it so intensely. And then Stephen's going, connect that with this and that with this and that with this and that with this. You can just see the cogs turning even here when Paul is about to order his execution, Stephen's execution. So at this moment, he's angry about it, but it's still cutting through. And I love that because this guy, Stephen, also has the same outlook about his life that Paul would demonstrate for the rest of his. It says, I am the Lord's servant. Therefore, I speak truth to power unapologetically. And if I die, I die. And Paul was exactly the same. You know, I kind of wonder how much this guy influenced him in the way that he dealt with this situation. He never stood up and went, you know, here's my case. Stop being mean to me. (laughs) this is nasty. Look at these people. They've dragged me in here and they're telling all these false stories about me. And I'd like to at least be able to, you know, give my case and my perspective and my point of view and argue for myself and hopefully win my life from you. He goes, oh, I've got a platform of the most powerful Jewish people in Judea right now in front of me. So I'm going to ignore the question about my life and my guilt And instead, I'm going to use the platform to tell the truth. And I love that.
2: What uh, Stephen is doing here is
0: he's taking up the mantle of Old Testament prophet. We don't think about that much in the New Testament, but that's precisely what he's doing here. He is judging the people in order to offer them the opportunity of repentance. And he wasn't about to sell that opportunity for a bowl of soup, being his life, right? He wasn't, a, he wasn't about to sell away that opportunity for these people, for their, their eternal destiny to be changed, so that his measly life could be, cha- could be saved. He sees the bigger picture. So, what do we need to recognise in the midst of this? Truth will often be on the wrong side of comfort. Truth will often be at the expense of our own comfort. But if we see God's narrative and weaving of history as of greater importance than our comfort, we will choose truth as Stephen did. Stephen's speech, I believe, was the bedrock of Paul's conversion, and Paul's conversion was potentially one of the most important things that happened in regard to the spread of the gospel. And what I love is that Stephen couldn't foresee any of this. He didn't know what was going to happen with these guys. But he ran headfirst into the wall in front of him because he knew it was the right thing in his spirit to do. So when I think about that uh, prophetic word that I read at the beginning about what uh, Nathan Christie Johnston was saying, There was this phrase used again and again I am going to give, uh, I am going to impart my glory to my church, but you have to make sure that you fear God, not man. Because the glory of the Lord, if we are going to be glory carriers into the world around us, we cannot be fearers of man. Because we will always err on the side of comfort and self preservation, always. In any scenario that we go to, it'll be, oh, I'm not allowed to say that. No, you're not allowed to do that. And you guys know what it feels like, right? Well, those are the things you're not allowed to say these days. No, I can't say that. can't do that, right? We'll err on that. But if we're going to be glory carriers and we're going to start to move into this completely new uh, season that the Lord has, is bringing us into, this latter season, this new wine season, and leave the past behind, this pulling back that he's been doing of the slingshot and pulling us back and and it feels like it's death, when he catapults us forward, we've got to be the kind of people who can fear what he can do far more than what can happen to us. It means being able to hold our lives lightly. It means being able to hold our comfort lightly, our finances lightly, all of the things that are dear to us lightly, to be able to go, he is the Lord and I am his servant. Therefore, he says, jump, and I say, how high? Therefore, he says, this is the truth and I want you to proclaim it. And I say, oh, goodness. Well, that might have some consequences. Oh, well, the consequence of not doing it is that I disappoint and disobey the Lord Almighty. So therefore, I do it. I I run headfirst into this wall, and there is a very strong call I believe uh, by the Lord for His church, for us at the moment, to be the people who are going to passionately pursue fear of the Lord at the expense of fear of man. When I say
2: fear of man, I mean both genders.
0: Mankind. Humankind. Fear of humankind just doesn't roll off the tongue the same as fear of man. Okay. Now, if I can jump ahead for a moment, and I'm not going to preach the next part of the story because whoever gets to preach next is going to do that, and yay for them. But what I love about um, Stephen's story is that he, even though he, uh, he doesn't get to finish his speech, so they basically get to this point where he starts to ramp it up and say, how dare you disobedient people and you're just like your forefathers who were also terrible, which is really baiting it. Uh, And that's it. They drag him off at that point and they stone him. But as much as his life is lost and as much as he doesn't get to see what happens as a result, he doesn't get to see Paul's conversion He doesn't get to see the results of his speech. He doesn't get to know that they're written down for us to read 2,000 years later. There would have been a question in his mind, did this make any difference whatsoever? I just, I spoke the truth. I did what the Lord asked me to do. I ran headfirst into the wall. I don't know whether it's going to make one ounce of difference. And yet, what he gets to see Is the Lord standing and calling him to heaven? So the scripture tells us that as he was being stoned, Stephen said, I can see the Lord standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, the fascinating thing for me about that is that we hear in the New Testament about Jesus at the right hand of the Father eight times in the New Testament, and there's only once where he's standing. And this is it he's standing. And I just see that as an ovation of the first martyr. Yep, you did exactly what I asked you to do, good and faithful servant. This is the hardest thing that anybody will ever have to do. And yet I'm standing here and honoring you, even though you can't see the results of your obedience. And I just think that's glorious. Like if there's any way or anything that can drive me passionately to the end of The call of God on my life, it's that. I want to get a standing ovation from my Lord. I want for him to go, well done. That was painful. That was hard. (laughs) Like that was really, really difficult. And you did it. You did it out of love for me. And you don't even get to see the results of it. But I am so proud of you. I want to see that. So, how do we get that ovation? By standing for him, by loving his presence more than Christianity. By loving him more than our methods, more than our traditions, more than our religion, more than our church. By dwelling with him more than knowing about him. By loving his truth more than caring about our comfort. And by worshipping him more than we worship the blessings he can give us. That's how we head toward that ovation. It's about intimacy with Jesus. It's about clinging to the Lord, going, I just want you. You more than
2: anything else. So let's um, pour fuel
0: on our fear of the Lord, and let's pour water on our fear of humanity and what the world can do to us, because we want to live for that ovation. Yeah? Let's pray, shall we? I thank you so much, Lord, for the people who have gone before us and the way that they have paved for us.
2: Those ones that you poured your life into. The ones that you walked next to,
0: Jesus. And then all of the people in between who have been faithful to your call and obedient to hearing your voice. We're here and we get to hear you and know you because of what they did before us. And so many people who have laid down their
2: lives and laid down their agendas. And we get to walk on their shoulders. We get to stand on their shoulders. But Lord, as we look at the past, we also want
0: to look at the future and what you want to do. And how you want to change this world by your gospel still. And Lord, if we're honest, we look at what's happened over these past decades and it looks like your gospel is getting less rather than greater. But we know because we can hear your spirit that you are doing a new thing and that you are changing the seasons, that you are causing a death of the old because it was not what you had called us to. And rather you are catapulting us into the new, into passion, into vigour. That we would be people who are alive and awake and passionate about you. That we would be people who understand that your power is more important than anything that can be thrown against us. And so, Father, as we look at Stephen and we even contemplate the difference that he made without even knowing it, I pray that you would fuel within us a fire and a passion to be people who live fully, obediently to you.
2: That you would grow us deeper in
0: intimacy with you. And that, Lord, because we lean into you and we're desperate to know you more and to obey you more, that you would make us world changers. I thank you for what you've done, but I thank you so much more for what you're about to do, because it is glorious and it is good and we want to be a part of it, sold out to you, passionate for you, living for you,
2: standing for you, prepared to do exactly what you ask of us. And I pray, Lord, that you would use us in powerful ways, even beyond this life. I thank you for the people who
0: are here today and those who are uh, not here today, but will hear this at another time. I thank you that you
2: are at work. That as you pull us back, As you change things up, as you
0: make the last season one of less, it's all because you have plans for more and for greater things. And so I speak this, I speak that Lord, over this congregation in Jesus' name, that the season that they are moving into would be a season of greater. That the season that they are moving into would be a season of passion and of calling, a season of new things, new insights,
2: new obedience, new calling, new success that's based on your success, not ours, new life, in Jesus' name. new authority, new influence in Jesus' name. And we thank you for what you will do.
1: I'm just going to sing a blessing over you. Now unto him who is able to keep Able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God. Savior, be glory and majesty to me.
0: you so much for listening. If you have any questions or feedback, please email us at hello at hoperevolution.church.